It's those two asshole. Those two idiots you saw me talking to at the third rail. Just he doesn't want to touch the third rail. That's you've hit the third rail for sure. That that is the third rail. Saying white people have interests. Third rail. The third rail here is uh, another wonderful show on our on the uh, TRS network. It's the third rail. You will be destroyed. You will be destroyed. Watch out for the third rail, baby. That's how folks. Any opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. Like a libtard crossing state lines for Idaho, this is happening. It is episode 225, 225 of the most huggable Kyle Singh podcast on the air since 1973, The Third Rail. We're coming to you almost live in the mobile Third Rail studio, this time from Kenosha, where we're toasting Kyle with a chaser and three shots. Hi, how are you? It is Spectre. And I got to tell you, I've heard the complaints. I've heard the comments. I've talked to listeners live now. And I understand that people are saying that our intro is getting too long or it's already too long. I take these very seriously. I hear what you're saying, and I'm going to respond. I'm going to keep making that fucking intro longer every single episode until we can post an entire episode that is just the intro. So, you know, challenge accepted. Now, anyway, uh, we are welcoming this week our legal resident expert, Kegs for Kavanaugh. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I'm riding high, and I think just about every normal person in this country is as well. And they call him the Greek stalker. It is Nikkei. How are you doing, my boy? Oh, I'm doing just fine. How's yourself? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, yeah, and our man behind the curtain, it's our producer, TV's Frank. How are you, Frank? Woo-woo. <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> okay. Um, I was um, – my, my writing partner complained that I uh, put the plug for the book too far deep into the podcast that I've been going on. So I'm just going to go ahead and get it out of the way now, then we can actually have a show. So commercial coming right now. AntelopeHillPublishing.com. Go to AntelopeHillPublishing.com to get the book that I wrote with Rich, Mr. Richard McClure, uh, Opioids for the Masses, Big Pharma's War on Middle America and the White Working Class. There's a whole lot in there. It's not just a, a – it's a part detective story. It's part indictment, and it names who is behind – this entire national tragedy. I saw. Yeah, I saw today that the projected um, twelve month uh, st- uh, for the twelve months ending in April of this year, total opioid deaths will be seventy five thousand. And what prompted us to write the book was the year twenty seventeen when there were forty seven thousand. So now there are actually more opioid deaths from o- o- overdose by opioid deaths in America in a twelve month period than we lost in the Korean War, in the Vietnam War. In the Gulf War, in uh, the Iraq War, and in the Afghanistan campaign, all combined, we lost that many last year. And you tell me that if we lost seventy-five thousand people to something, and you called it terrorism, for instance, do you think that we'd still be waiting to, for the government to actually get their shit together and do something about this? No. So that's yeah, uh, AntelopePillPublishing.com. Opioids for the masses. Commercial is officially over. Now we can buy the books. Bigot. Yes, buy the book and post your dankest Rittenhouse memes now, boys. What do you got? (laughs) 
Well, uh, I'm kidding. I, I just feel like this, this subject's been talked a lot, and, and there's wonderful memes going on. I'm I'm like, what what can we add to this? I don't know. Do you have anything? Well, I'm in a in possession of a Rittenhouse NFT that's currently worth over seven to ten million dollars. So maybe I'll cut a check to the plaintiffs in Science versus Kessler and cover all <sighs> their damages. Which that would be so nice of you. Something that flew under the radar, I thought, was that the ask for damages was, I think, three to five million in regular uh, physical damages or whatever, and then seven to ten in punitive damages. And I thought, isn't there a number you're kind of missing there for these plaintiffs? There's yeah. one. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't. <laughs> I'm trying to think of reasons why there 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 wouldn't be that number. Six million dollars of emotional damage. So th- three to five and seven to ten. Wow, it's, it's almost like all gravity centers around that number. You know, the, the it, on the low and the high end, it's orbiting that particular number. It's just so strange for our numero- numerological obsessed friends to to do that. I guess. Well, numerologically, it's what the. Ellie Wiesel, number of goys who died in the Holocaust, and then the claimed death toll in the Holodomor. So make it that what you will. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Big think. Big think. Well, I think you're right, though. We should invest in it. Everybody should invest in NFTs and give it to the plaintiffs in Science v. Kessler. And that's, that is both legal and financial advice I'm giving you here on the air. Um, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, I was doing the Sam Hyde bit. Um, Obviously, I gotta no. make I gotta uh, uh, mint a NFT of um, Grosskreutz uh, screaming when his arm gets blown off. How about just the the pulsing bicep on the ground? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, very I, I rare actually found... do not steal. <laughs> very rare do not steal. Um, I did find I think it's like the king of all Rittenhouse meltdowns and this and not the fun ones that, you know, everybody's already gone through. But this guy is like very serious. He's a blue check mark. He's the founder of some I don't know what it is. He, he lives in Virginia by his name, Umar something. He clearly should not be living in Virginia, but he had this to say. And I think you'll like where this goes, boys. And in fact, you might find yourselves agreeing, but for the wrong reasons. The Rittenhouse verdict will be remembered as the moment American fascism turned into Nazism proper, and there was no turning back from the path of Holocaust. Decisions like this, which legitimize hate and violence, laud it, reward it, write the destinies of nations. You'd have to be a fool not to see where America goes from here. Believe me when I tell you that for those of us who've studied and lived through actual fascist collapses, the situation in America is even worse than you think. It's as bad as it could possibly be. Don't minimize or deny this is a living nightmare, and it's now going to get worse. Ooh. Unfortunate place for a typo. That's it, guys. There's no going back. We have about two years to make an exit plan, or else you and yours are going to get hit by the violence to come when the Nazis take power, too. Good luck. I'm out, heading back to the studio. I can't warn you any more strongly than I have been. It's now or never. America's not going back to normal. It's going to go all the way down the abyss. You need to think long and hard about what this means for you personally. I don't think he's quite wrong, though, that what this past week has revealed is the system's not in a good spot. This is what real accelerationism looks like. 
it's not killing male men. It's not calling for violence online, but it's when the system is forced to use its judiciary, really the last line of defense short of shooting you in the head to punish internal dissidents and punish self-defense. And Rittenhouse put the government in an unwinnable situation. Either they convict him for self-defense and turn up the heat on the right, or they let him get away with blasting three other foot soldiers. And the latter ha option happened. And there were feds waiting in the wings in case of a acquittal like Chauvin. That would have been the nightmare scenario where Rittenhouse got acquitted and they scooped him up in the trial and, and there were contingency plans in place for Chauvin. But when people talk about a system collapsing under its own contradictions, like the communists used to talk about capitalism collapsing, this is what is happening right now to the judicial system. And now we're seeing this transformed into a racial issue. And analogy Greg Conti would probably use would be in Rome, in the last days of Rome, if there was a general who could effectively fight off the barbarian tribes, the emperor would recall them and execute them because they were a threat to the power. In the same sense, the judicial system has to choose either between persecuting us too strongly and, and activating the right or really activating the left and, and demoralizing them. They're very demoralized right now. You saw, and, and something happened during the week where the Charlottesville trial jumped back into the headlines. And I disagree with Jazz Hands that this is because they wanted to wait until closing arguments. I believe this is because they saw the Rittenhouse trial going down the shitter and they had to move this forward as their backup plan but i sort of like the more the one to grab the headlines and to show the system's victory yes assuming that you know things don't go well and yeah and then and then they have the the air. Now, well. no. <laughs> sorry go ahead and well we all saw that the jury didn't return a verdict on friday and as glenn allen wrote up in an excellent article that Frankie could probably post the link in the, the chat for. By his estimate, they've probably raised around 25 million. They're punching above their weight on that fundraising total because the firms probably aren't either billing their full rate or they're working pro bono. They almost certainly were timing the trial to try and maximize the pressure on the jury to return a verdict in one day. They have enough money on specialist attorneys and they're they've got enough staff to try and plan for this trial to wrap up on thursday and that's what they got but the jury did not return a verdict and that's yeah. certainly a positive thing yeah, yeah I was gonna ask all you about that, that money go, that go, they've go that they've spent and they're they still have to uh to settle for uh, not reaching their goals. Like, you know, you just can't, they can't seem to buy a total victory, and that's good news for us. 
Yeah, um, I think Warren Balog said it. Um, he's the secretary for the NJP. He he had a Telegram post where he said, you know, the, the heartening thing for us to take, you know, taking taking a step back from Rittenhouse is, you know, just to consider that, you know, even though things are stacked against us, they control a lot of the systems. They don't have total control, and uh, even like their controlled opposition can't rein in the the actual good white people out there who are cheering you know Rittenhouse and you now of course the GOP is kind of you know trying to glom onto him after it's safe to but you know they would have preferred to kind of take the black rifle coffee company approach of yeah we don't we don't support this kid you know this this was wrong but they couldn't even get that done so you know they don't have the total control of the system that we always think of them as having and it doesn't take much to you know throw a sabo into the old machine as it were uh i did want to ask you about this uh kegs because you are a legal expert here is the truism that the longer the jury takes the better it is for the defense does that actually hold true and then i have a second question but go ahead and absolutely right here Mm -hmm. the the plaintiffs were certainly hoping for a verdict today and they can't even Friday. get on Friday. Or, just after or one day, Friday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After after one day. And the plaintiffs were can't even get verdicts finding liability. The jury's not hundred percent there on the default defendants. So Elliot Klein and Asmador. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna ask you about that also. Um uh, there were two reports that said that one of the jury uh requests for clarification from the judge was whether because they had Eli Mosley and Robert Ray Asmador had been sanctioned because they did not participate or you know cooperate with the lawsuit, did that necessarily mean that they were automatically to be found liable? Which, you know, that actually if that's what was asked and if the, it was in the you know the spirit that we're kind of understanding it, it sounds like they're saying, well maybe I don't want to find Eli Mosley liable and so you know am i required to just because he has been sanctioned or it could have just been somebody being a spurg about the rules who knows i don't want to get the wrong hope up but it seems like between those two things that's got to be a good sign and i don't i want everybody to manage their expectations but i mean am i wrong well yeah i mean i think uh kind of logically it has to be a good signal because uh you know the the standard i'm i'm not sure if it's the same standard for the default um uh, cases, but uh, for everyone else, you know, as you've uh, mentioned in your reportings, they need a unanimous decision here. And if they're taking, if they can't reach a decision in a day, it's by definition because they haven't reached a uh, unanimous decision. They have dissent uh, amongst them, and so, you know, implicitly, that's a sign that the uh, the uh, uh, plaintiffs don't have what they're looking for out of these jurors yeah and i wonder if because they were admonished to that they could look at the jury instructions over the weekend but they weren't to obviously discuss it with anyone or do any new research into it but they're not told that you know they're not sequestered they can watch television they can see what's going on with rittenhouse and the you know there were kind of low-level uh uh riots in kenosha but there was a little bit of uh you know stuff on out and about going on and i just wonder if that's because everybody hates antifa and now they're seeing them do it you know striking their shit up again that might also have a little bit of influence i don't know i mean am i am, again 
I am a natural optimist, even though I know better than to be. So I always want to caution myself. Like, am I just like grasping at straws here, guys? What do you think? Well, with the riots, what you saw in Kenosha was black people don't give a shit if some pedo Antifa, if their white Antifa uh, buddies get blasted by some kid. And probably if you did end up talking to a black guy about this case and you said, oh, by the way, Joseph Rosenbaum raped five kids between the ages of nine to 11, they, they just say, shit, that's some cracker. They think he's a crazy yeah. ass cracker who deserved to be blasted. Yeah, I want to correct yeah, myself. There weren't really more, riots in Kenosha. There were they yeah. were more like in Portland, Seattle, and, and a little bit of disturbance in Chicago, I think. So I, I don't want to overstate what happened. But it, what I'm saying is there were some clashes on the news this weekend. And this is TV race, these jurors. So surely they were watching television unless they were just catching up on CSI or whatever. I would say the one case that has potential for riots is the Arbery case for obvious reasons. I was definitely surprised that there's not any, well, there was an oral ruling against issuing instructions regarding the Georgia citizens arrest law. Uh And this is the McMichaels case. Yeah. And the McMichaels case and the judges taking up written motions on the issue during the, over the weekend with closing arguments to occur on Monday. And What struck me was, from what I saw, the judge's oral ruling was on the basis that the McMichaels did not observe Arbery committing a crime, which is just false because staking out or scoping out a construction site for a robbery is a crime in and of itself. Even if you intend to commit the robbery later, that in and of itself is a crime. And... That was a ridiculous ruling, I think, there. And one of the defendants was apparently trying to plead guilty over the over the over this past week, but failed. But if there's one thing to take from the Rittenhouse case and even to some extent the Charlottesville case, justice in this country is increasingly a product of where you're tried and what the jury makeup is. And at the end of the day, the Kenosha kids jury was a supermajority white jury from what I've heard. And the McMichaels jury is 11 white jurors and one juror of color. So I wouldn't count McMichaels out quite yet. And I'd yeah. almost be willing to put even odds on an acquittal. Damn. Okay. Well, that's I sure hope because they get it. I, they have had uh, a lot of bizarre, like things stacked against them in terms of how this how their cases proceeded in court and you know it 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 feels like especially for the McMichaels that they've been um artificially uh given a a harder case to make in their defense yeah what there's been is there's been zero institutional support from anyone anyone in conservative circles for the McMichaels yeah, no, because uh, the GOP would would they they desperately desperately want to recruit more blacks because blacks are just natural conservatives, don't you know? And so they don't want to be seen as supporting anything that uh, is that goes against a black, you know. And and that's what's amazing is like I I'm old enough to remember barely eight years ago when 
mainstream normie GOP types were on board with uh, uh, in the uh, Trayvon Martin case with with George. Uh, I was going to say George Lopez, George Zimmerman. <laughs> I mean, they were on board. With him. <laughs> Uh, and, and they had no problem embracing it, even though uh, even before he was acquitted. So it, it's just amazing how cucked the GOP has gotten just in the last eight nine years. No, it's it's I mean, absurd, and, and it's unforgivable. Uh, constantly, it's an eternal lesson of time to never cuck. And yep. conservatives just refuse to learn this this lesson. I mean, for Christ's sake, you had uh, the, you know, Jewish uh, retards over at the Black Rifle Coffee Company cucking on Rittenhouse. Yeah. I mean, the guy, what, you, oh, now you think he's guilty all of a sudden? What changed? Well, No, your your perception of, uh, of, you know, what others perceive his case made you change. Oh, no, I can tell you exactly what occurred with Black Rifle Coffee Company. The Jewish CEO saw that Rittenhouse had killed two Jews, and he, you know, that's not to allowed to stand. That's in the fucking Torah. You know? Do you think it was that specifically? I think it was largely that specifically, but maybe they were uh, conscious that um, if they, but see, he specifically brought up racists who supported Rittenhouse, and since to the average white person who is not woke, whatever. Uh, these three, all three victims, or all three people that Rittenhouse shot, are white. You know, it doesn't matter that they're Jewish. So, to say that uh, for him to say that he perceived the people supporting Rittenhouse to be racist, well, how exactly? He shot supposedly three white people, right? So race was on his mind, but I really think it was because those were two of his co-ethnics. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. It could be. I. Uh- I think it was more just uh, the, the faggot instincts of, you know, big conservative, uh, you know, TM that they don't like having uh, any association with stuff that uh, their enemies, the left leftists call racist and white supremacist. And I believe it was, if I recall the events correctly, they did this after like. Uh, a photo came out where he's giving an okay sign to the to the camera. Yeah, yeah, and, we're and standing with a proud boy. Yeah. Uh, oh, so maybe it was like concerned about being associated with because at that point the stock was going down for the Proud Boys, and so maybe that was it. But I just I I can't the, help but believe some ethnic solidarity was at play. The Black Rifle Coffee Company stuff, if I recall correctly, came well before the Proud Boys incident. Oh, really? Okay, so that, that swings me back to that my, my original position. I blame the Jews, believe it or not. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's now a contest between Democrats and Republicans to who can condemn the other side of being racist harder. And so they weren't going to touch McMichaels with a 10-foot pole. They're not touching Charlottesville for obvious reasons. Um, but the only reason it seems like to me for uh, somebody whose primary – customer base is right-leaning Republican NRA types, well, hmm. I just, I don't don't see the race thing coming into it unless it's the Jewish race. Perhaps. Again, but that's just my (laughs) Have you guys seen the 
Black Rifle Coffee Co. military fashion show. Yeah, their fucking oh drag God. show yesterday or whatever. Uh, maybe oh. two days ago. I mean, that's... <laughs> it's like very conservative moment here. This is this is us doing a conservatism. On, well, on and they're not wrong. They're not wrong. I mean, conservatism now is about we have better looking drag queens. They haven't tweeted since uh, Thursday. Wow. Interesting. Chicken. Well, probably can't tweet on Friday, so. That's a good point. (laughs) Friday at sundown until Saturday at sundown. Yeah, maybe that's why they haven't uh, had any remarks about the case. (laughs) Oh, my God. They need their their Shabos tweeter. You know, I want to go back to our guy. Go ahead, Kex. I mean, these these people are Zionists. They believe in the ethnic supremacy of racial Judaism. That's their position. What's inexcusable is just how little coverage there has been on the right, even Daily Wire or even Tucker. I don't think Tucker's mentioned the Charlottesville trial at all, has he? Yeah. No. And... I was one of the things I was looking at was I was looking whether Andy Go has uh, mentioned the Charlottesville trial at once. You know, you'd think as the big Antifa guy, you would mention this yeah. trial where the biggest he, where Antifa is literally putting innocent men on trial to take their livelihood, you know, repossess their trailers and what have you, or probably well, in the case of. You know, I was going to say, this guy's... Like... Oh, sorry. We got that delay thing with Scott going. You finish. Oh. Yeah, I I just think it's un- unforgivable that Andy Ngo or anyone on the right is failing to stick up for these people. And they're not wealthy people at all, the defendants in this case. I, I no. guess the dream scenario for the plaintiffs would be to have the New York Times reporter there taking pictures while they uh, put a put a big lock and, and tow away, I guess, Matt, Matt Parrott's 18-wheeler and, I don't know, auction it off or, or give it to a right. H-1B truck driver, whatever visa they use for those yeah. people. Well, Andy, Andy Ngo's uh, failure on this is actually more remarkable because that's his shtick is supposedly – I'm the guy who shows the Antifa are violent and dangerous, and I and I name them, and you know I, I use I comb through footage to prove how bad Antifa is. Well, so what's different about this? You know, we have a whole lot of footage of them being bad. We have a whole lot of evidence of them, you know, conspiring themselves to to deny the civil rights of the the permitted marchers and rally goers, and yet and, and we have a lot of doxes on them because of their involvement in this legal case. He could do his thing where he likes to, you know, name the Antifa. He's not there. He's just not there. I very strange, isn't it? His absence. I mean, I, I do respect his other work, what he's done, but it's pretty clear that he just, you know, no one s- supposedly to the to the right wants to be associated with Charlottesville, and it's because they're cowards. It's funny because in many respects the insurance company james field's car insurance company lawyer displayed more courage than any other conservative 
where he said, James Fields was a lone wolf. Don't hold the other plaintiffs liable. He wasn't part of a conspiracy. He almost unintentionally or otherwise fell on his own sword and, and helped his client. Well, maybe not necessarily helped his client out, but he helped the plate, the defendants out by saying this was James Fields's fault, but he wasn't part of a conspiracy, which I could see that also confusing the jury where you have one of the plaintiffs admitting that, or his attorney's, admitting that, oh, yeah, he intentionally rammed his car through uh, a joyous crowd, but it was because he was pissed off, not because he was part of some sort of conspiracy. So that might have helped. Right. And that was a little little high point for that attorney after he really, really abased himself uh, at the start of the trial. He should have just been quiet throughout the start and then – what he should have done as well, he he should have attacked the damages like Christopher Campbell did and just shred the credibility of these. Well, he did. He did to some degree. He did to some some degree, degree. I think. But yeah, not as effectively as, as Chris, obviously. And for anybody who's listening, not live to this um, little bonus after the, the outro music, you'll get a 15 minute phone call I had with uh, Chris after he gave his epic closing. So in case you hadn't uh, seen that on my telegram, it'll be attached to the show. But um, yeah, um, a lot of missed opportunities. One thing that didn't get discussed a lot uh, because it was on Wednesday that you know when the defense closed early and everybody was kind of like, "What the fuck? You already you know you're already resting. Um, you've barely done anything." And immediately we had the next day the closing arguments, so it kind of got lost in the shuffle. But one big debate that was going on is. Did they rest too soon? Like the plaintiffs took 17 days. These guys took like a day and a half and rested all of them. And one uh, theory from a lawyer who's not involved in the case that I talked to said, well, in the totality, and he's been monitoring the the trials well, very closely. uh, The reality is the plaintiffs never really made a, a case for conspiracy. Even though that you know the we found out the next day during jury instructions that the hurdle for finding that is like you know stepping over a fucking blade of grass but um the uh and because like cantwell and others had done such a good job of discrediting a lot of their eyewitness testimony and their videos and all that that really there was no point in going back over it and showing the same stuff i don't know i mean i'm obviously not a lawyer and then i think you kegs had the opinion that no there should have been a lot more done instead of just like placating the jury and letting them know that they can get the fuck out of here quicker I mean, what do you think? What my fear was, was that at the end of the day, the jurors would have seen that the plaintiffs put on however many days of evidence and the defense only put on one day, which is also difficult because the defendants were using their time during the plaintiff's case to cross-examine the witnesses. The plaintiffs called several defendants to the stand. So it's not an apples to apples comparison. But I was expecting more witnesses on the defense side. But as Glenn Allen will say, there's a whole difficult process of getting people to show up. And there might have been, there may well have been 
people the defense wanted to call as witnesses, but they're 500 miles away and no one might know where they are. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to the defendants in that respect. But I think at the end of the day, it, it might what might have saved the day is they ended early. They well, they ended on a good note where they the the Chris Cantwell closer was still fresh in their minds. They they got out on Friday. They held them off on Friday. The the they they've at least temporarily hung the jury. Maybe not the technical term, but there is some dissension within the jury. And I'm I'm willing to call it a victory that the defendants have got it gotten this far putting on this case caused so much dissension and wringing of hands and ass blasting in the media and i know one of the things we talked about before was that this is the last third rail before thanksgiving so i wanted to say for each of us to say one thing we're thankful for and one thing i am thankful for is that four and a half years after seville after literally thousands of white men and women have lost their jobs for their beliefs after dozens of people have gone to jail after the anti-riot act has been used against us after our people have been tortured according to the UN definition by being thrown in solitary confinement in unsanitary disease-ridden cells for 23 and a half hours a day, that we're still here and we're still making headlines on CNN and The Atlantic. We're still haunting Karen Dunn's dreams, Roberta Kaplan's <laughs> nightmares. And we're, this is the third act. I know Borzoi talks a lot about people expect the third act. They think life's like a movie, but, but in many ways we saw the third act in the trial where the plaintiff started strong and then the defense came in with their lying, slimy expert witnesses, their plaintiffs who discovered magically that, oh, two days ago I realized I was sprayed by Christopher Cantwell's gaseous substance. And then the third act act came in and with a strong closer from Mr. Cantwell, they've, the defense has held, held them off for another weekend and that's got to worry them. And that's what I'm thankful for. Okay. Nikkei, I want to hear both what you're thankful for. And as a non attorney observer, what you thought about the defense resting early. All right. First one, I'm thankful for. Um, we we've had a a lot of uh, of real courage shown through all this, and that bravery is is a it comes from uh, a lot of things. For for many people, it's because they have no other choice but to be brave, you know, or that's the rest of their life gone. Um, but it's still a choice one has to make, and getting that courage, uh, you know, we have a whole country of uh, of people like us, you know, praying for everyone facing legal problems. Um, 
and praying for that courage. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful that it's, it's been granted, um, because it, that's how we can, that's how we actually win in the end. You know, it's, it's by taking a stand and being, being brave in the face of, you know, t- millions of dollars worth of, uh, worth of, you know, Zog coming down on us. Um, so I, I'm very thankful for that. It's a, uh, it's a, an example for all of us. And it's something I've, you know, taken and, uh, internalized personally. Uh, as for, uh, the, uh, defense resting early, I, I think, um, I, I agreed with the take you had on, uh, on FTN. Uh, people were just getting annoyed. Uh, well, I, I certainly was with the the these like awful Jews that are uh, you know litigating this case. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think yeah. If, if you can make a concise point and uh, you know leaving it at that, there's more memory in the minds of the jury dedicated to to your words than theirs because if you just you know wall text the jury it's a lot of it's just forgettable i mean do any of us really think that uh that testimony from um from shit lib deborah shit lib is uh really going to matter no and no one's even going to remember that or much about peter simi or you know, it's like they're going to remember the the, <coughs> the plaintiffs who broke down or like got destroyed on cross, or they're going to remember the the better performances that you know that Cantwell had, just because they're more entertaining. Even if you don't agree with them, he's just an entertaining guy. So I mean, that's it, what it they'll like, hopefully remember. Feels like just bizarro, like clown world simulation shit that she was even there. Yeah, it's especially like, if they could have afforded to get David Irving in there to on cross. Or it's like, on yeah, defense's case. <laughs> Like who, who's next? Are we gonna get fucking uh, Ghislaine Maxwell like his call as a witness by the like just totally out of left field? But I mean, I, there's it's a, like the simulation is running out of of, of characters and NPCs to uh, yeah, parade yeah, before us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it has to like go to you know previously rendered characters. Yeah, like or like in Skyrim when you like keep bumping into the you know different people that are all saying you know I'm traveling to. I'm traveling to Whiterun to join the Stormcloaks. Wait, uh, I know you. Yes. Well, you're a lawbreaker. That's why. Um, yeah. I guess I don't have it. I don't want to like limit myself to any one thing. Any one thing about either any of these things going on. Um, I guess I would say. I guess I'm thankful that there's a cause worth fighting for and a people worth fighting for that are out there. And, you know, through ups and downs, we have that. And, of course, you know, final victory would be, you know, would be great. But, you know, as long as we're in the fight, that's that's what life is. I mean, you know, who said men who would uh, men who would live must fight. He who doesn't wish to fight in this world where permanent struggle is the law of life has not the right to exist. So as long as we're in there kicking and fighting, I'm thankful. Amen. All right. Um, one thing I did want to get into, and 
I don't know if this is too much in the weeds at this point, but you know, this whole thing has been in Charlottesville was a, obviously a David and Goliath. And I hate having to use that reference, but you know, from the old Testament, but it's kind of fitting. Um, and we knew that a lot of the, uh, defendants were either of, you know, just modest working class means or some of them indigent or in jail and they literally can't earn money. Um, so, you know, in broad strokes, we thought about, you know, some of them defending themselves, some of them having to hire some lawyers, but not having anything like what the the uh, plaintiffs did because we knew that they'd raised what, between 15 and 20 million dollars now is the estimate. Um, but Glenn Allen, um, who's a great attorney out of uh, Maryland and uh, known uh, he, he's he's just, you know, he's a friend of ours in, in the broad sense of the word ours. He has this great article over on freeexpressionfoundation.org, and I put the link in the chat and we'll put it in the show notes. But he goes into the details of how this, you know, the idea of lawfare works and how just overpowered these defendants were from the beginning. Um, uh, the three larger firms involved with the plaintiffs um, represent uh, – the three law firms comprised that are involved with Roberta Kaplan in this are comprised of over 1,300 lawyers altogether and have an income in 2020 of approximately $1.9 billion. And that's in addition to the uh, – Glenn Allen actually estimates it at $25 million that they raised to, to prosecute this lawsuit. But in my mind, as a you know, civilian who's never much had to uh, deal with lawyers, um, you, know, you, you kind of think of them in terms of like uh, – Oh, I'm going to hire you for this case. Here's your flat fee. Uh, you know, it is what it is, and maybe there'll be some you know, additional expenses. But you know, that's that's how you know most civil things, in my experience, have gone. But because this is a uh, such a far-reaching lawsuit where they went in and they you know subpoenaed all these people and all this stuff, uh, just getting serving those subpoenas, just uh, going and doing these depositions, it runs into the tens of thousands of dollars. And it's beyond, and that's above and beyond what you're actually paying your attorney. Um, so you know the idea, like, oh, I, you know, you know, I wish we could have had seen somebody bring in David Irving as an expert witness if that was part of their case. Yeah, but who's got the thirty thousand dollars to pay him as an expert witness? You know, maybe he'd give a you know cut rate because you know he might feel sympathetic. I don't know, but you get the idea that they really just had no means to go in and fight this, and to see that they've just you know even start, fought to a standstill on the first day of deliberations. That to me is just amazing. But you're right. And I think this, well, if you have family members who are conservative and you're willing to talk about lawfare and it's going to come up. I mean, I would. I'm. I'm not one to talk about politics over Thanksgiving, and I. I'm almost one to actively discourage it. But the nature of the the timing of these trials will be. I mean, it it is perfect for the racist uncle Thanksgiving conversations. It couldn't have. <laughs> it couldn't have come at a worse time for these yeah. people. And you know, you might say if if the family. The two wings of the the family are going at it over the Kenosha kid. You might as well bring in the McMichaels and the well and the Charlottesville trial. Yeah, and I will say with with all these 
with all the bucks the plaintiffs are raising, the $25 million or God knows how much it was, I know Kaplan brought up, it was either Kaplan or Dunn brought up how the defendants worked together to raise funds. Some of the defendants worked together to raise funds. And if I had been one of the attorneys there for the defendants, that that would have, it would have been very hard not to just get up out of your seat and just start yelling that that's beyond the pale. And then you could even go into closing. I would say they've, they've opened the door. They've opened the, the door to fundraising as coordination and conspiracy. And I'm going to bring in that they're bringing in all these attorneys. You can't come here with your $10 million, $30 million New York city attorneys and shit on my clients for trying to scrape two pennies together. That's not evidence of conspiracy. They're raising money because you people sued them. Yeah. You put them all in a box and called them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, they hadn't pressed the uh, the issue. The fundraiser wouldn't have happened. Yeah, and it's 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 a little thing that uh, t- to just further demonstrate the disparity. Um, let's say you're TWP and you have Josh Smith, and he only actually came on board the the case I think four weeks before it started. Um, but had he, let's say that they wanted him to go depose some people, I mean, Josh is a sole proprietor or uh, sole practitioner. He doesn't have offices in like ten different states. And, you know, you'd have to you'd have to pay him for his time to travel, his lodging, food, all all this stuff just to go get a deposition. Whereas these guys, the the plaintiffs with, you know, these literally hundreds of lawyers and, you know, offices all across America, they want to do a deposition of a guy and he lives in Ohio. They can just have somebody from their Cincinnati office go and do the deposition and it costs them so much less. They get to raise the twenty five million for the case, but they only have to spend as much as it costs to send down this junior attorney. To, to actually perform the deposition. So when we're talking about disparity, it's not just, you know, like a hundred one. This is on the you know order of magnitude of, you know, a million to one. Uh, and quite possibly that actually is literal because it could be that the, you know, between them, the defendants only scraped together what, twenty five thousand dollars. Wait, what's one percent of twenty five million? Is that twenty that's that two hundred and fifty that's actually not out of the realm of possibility that they've spent two hundred fifty million or two hundred fifty thousand dollars over the last four years trying to put together their defense versus literally 25 million. So, and then those, again, like, like I'm saying, it's, it's just amplified. Um, yeah. Not to things- mention that like Cantwell has had to do all of his, uh, preparation from jail. Oh, I think, I, I think it was recorded in our conversation that will be played after this, but a lot of his, he had a whole lot of stuff written before he had to leave where he's in jail in Illinois to be transferred to the Virginia uh, prison or uh, jail that they're keeping him in, he they did not let him take his handwritten notes that he'd been working on for you know God knows possibly four years. Really? Yeah, he had to do it all from memory and re- recreate what he had already created. And sometimes amazing. he was seeing amazing. He was seeing uh, the evidence, like the videos that were entered into evidence by the plaintiffs during his cross. He would actually see them for the first time in real time. Like he had not been provided those. Maybe the other defendants had access to him, but he had not had access to them. So like he was like when he was like sitting there, you know, putting, what's that person wearing? What's that person got in their hand? It was all new to him. He just had faith that it was all there. That's what's you know to me. That's thinking on your fucking feet. 
all one of the things that I hope. Yeah. What I hope but, is that, well, four years from now, we're going to see a lot of Zoomer attorneys coming out inspired by Christopher fucking Cantwell and his performance at this oh, trial. Yeah. That if Christopher fucking Cantwell can do this and blow Robbie Kaplan out of the water with both hands tied behind his back. Phys- literally, literally, he's got he's in the handcuffs and he's he's beating these people. Yep. Um, I, I expect that the guys in this thing that are more cerebral or just have a good gut and natural talent for arguing and building logical arguments that they will seriously consider going into law school and an army of lawyers have a more or less (laughs) open offer if you're extremely vetted if you're in a pool party or willing to get vetted that i can help with studying for the lsat i can help edit redacted uh, law school personal statements to the extent that that's permitted and i can help with law school application strategy uh if you can go through the channels of i don't know contacting mike or, or striker and um, I'm, I'm willing to help out in that respect yeah what is the and what is the vetting email hopefully um, yeah hopefully four years from now we have a, a crop of they the i don't know zoom zoom lawyers where they got the the shaved sides of the head. They got the little glasses. They're doing Fortnite dances like Christopher Cantwell is doing when they when they own Block. And <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll, yeah, I, I'm sure I can find it. There's an email that you can uh, send to to get vetted. You should already be vetted, but you can get vetted now. Just for Keggs' generous offer. We um, need to uh, make a uh, acquisition of LegalZoom and uh, change the name to LegalZoomer. Yes, perfect. Um, one of the things that was in Glenn's uh, article that is also troubling and, and shows just how offset these people, you know, what advantage they had going into this was um, the broad discovery that was used. Not so much... Um, as far as like making their case even easier to make, but just as an oppressive tactic. Um, He says one effective means to crush an ideological opponent, especially one for whom confidentiality is critical is by broad and invasive discovery, interrogatories, document requests, and depositions. This technique was definitely in Ms. Kaplan's playbook. Such a technique is nearly guaranteed to have at least some success. Even if the broad discovery requests are limited or denied, Simply requesting them will alarm the defendants and others who learn of them and will impose on their defendants the often onerous, frustrating, and expensive burden of litigating discovery disputes. Here are two examples among dozens that can be cited of Kaplan's expansive discovery requests. Quote, all documents and communications concerning events, meetings, rallies, conferences, or conversations held prior to the UTR events that relate to the event in any way. All documents and communications concerning violence, intimidation, or harassment of persons on the belief of race, religion, or ethnicity, including but not limited to ethnic cleansing, white genocide, a white ethnostate, or any other form of large or small-scale violence. And, you know, what does that 
just having that, you know, being made public that this discovery was requested of defendants in a lawsuit can, you know, make people, you know, send chills down uh, supporters' spines or like, you know, uh, I don't want to be connected to them anymore. I don't want to uh, communicate. I don't want to get involved in something like that because they could come after and dox me. Now, that, you know, fortunately, that didn't really happen as much as they would have wanted to in Science v. Kessler. But it's obviously an, just an intimidation tool. And it, it's intelligence gathering. It's intelligence gathering on your ideological enemy. Hello? Am I Hello. speaking to I, you? I was just... I was just reading the chat, and one of the ladies in the chat is asking about betting for women. And Spectre, do you know the name of the the women's group that uh, Evergreen or Evergreen? I think that's it. Would you be able to put that link in the chat? Uh, <laughs> I don't or know if that... I can. I'll have to ask. Okay, we just had a, a women in chat asking about betting. So, and I'm willing to say if if you're a if you're a woman and you've got some natural talent, I'll I'll, I'll help you too. <laughs> with we need a you can do both. Yeah, it's speaking not, of broad discovery, I'd like ooh. to discover some broads. <laughs> hey, <It's> terrible. <laughs> Oh, uh, the the vetting email. It's gonna. I'll put it in the show notes and I'll put it in the chat right now. Is trslmania at protonmail.com. That's trstle mania at protonmail.com. That's how you get vetted. If Marcus Martin's ex-wife can pass the bar without reading, I know the women in our thing can can pass with flying colors. So you're not. But you're not going to teach them how to read, are you? We don't want none of the women in our thing want to know how to read. It's terrible. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you're right. I, I honestly, I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll just have to find out if they they have like a public email or not. But otherwise, I can like, well, we'll talk about it later. If there's anything these women can do well, it's verbal arguments. Oh yeah, nagging our way to total Aryan victory. Yeah, I was telling you guys offline um, about. And we don't have to go into exactly what the detail was, but how I, I tried to pull just yesterday the uh, Chad walk out, you know, just over an argument like I'm just not going to listen to this and just walk out and come back at my leisure after apologies are made. And that's when I was like, oh, shit, I left something important at her house. Damn it. Uh, so, yeah, not only can they do that, but I think she used her, her uh, womanly wiles to make me do that to make me want to leave and leave behind the important thing that I needed to keep with me. So, yep. The, uh, well, sorry, go ahead. One, one thing I thought I'd touch on briefly specter, especially given your recent work in your book, which should be purchased from antelope hill. Publishing.com antelope hill, publishing.com. was, <laughs> The extent to which the Build Back Better Act covers drug treatment programs, and at least according to the National Review, the Build Back Better Act appropriates a total of $124 million 
to substance abuse programs, whereas it appropriates, for comparison, $321 million additionally to the EOC, so oh. to persecute businesses for, <laughs> you know, not hiring. Literal, for hiring sanely. You know, yeah, insane uh, rapists and criminal records, ban the box type stuff, whether, you know, that's a bona fide occupational qualification and whatever. But if there's one positive thing out of that, it's that I've heard you can claim you're an Irishman if you abandon being white and then use the EEOC against your company for its affirmative action program, as a recent guest on the People Square said. Oh my God, yeah. Oh, Which, from a legal perspective, everything he said regarding that's complete and utter bullshit. I just want to put that out there. Don't do that shit. It, yeah. Because, and the reason is, if they're discriminating against you for being white, you need to allege they're discriminating against you for being white. If you say they're discriminating against me for being Irish, well, that is a legal claim. You can claim national origin discrimination. What they can say is, oh, well, here's a comparable Frenchman, individual of French descent, who we're treating the exact same. Here's a comparable German. Right, right. And, and they can wriggle that out of that that way. And plus, and any of the indirect evidence of them... Their, their diversity programs or their anti-white trainings, then they can say, how's that relevant to your discrimination against Irish claim? We don't have any anti-Irish materials. Indeed, right, we, right. We, we even train on Noel Ignatiev. And just that, that whole, the whole uh, strategy of, not claiming discrimination on the basis of being white from a legal perspective is again, complete and utter bullshit. Uh, whites are protected by the civil rights act. Whites are protected from racial discrimination. What whites lack is both legal resources uh, where there's certainly many lawyers who are reluctant to take those sort of claims if they even take them at all. And then also a, a culture of making those claims where whites are, well, to the extent they, they, they know that they have rights under the civil rights act, which, which it's certainly kept under wraps. There is sort of an attitude where, Oh, I'm, I guess I'm being shown the door. I'll go and I'll apply to another job. Well, those jobs, if you're a 50-year-old white man, there's fewer and fewer opportunities. And it is certainly a point of point in a lot of these minorities' favor where they make it fucking as hard as fuck to fire them. And that's exactly the attitude that whites at these Fortune 500 companies or, or even small businesses that are being shown the door on account of their race, they need to take that exact same attitude and they need to allege anti-white discrimination, not fucking Absolutely. Anti, anti-German discrimination, anti-Irish discrimination, yeah, anti-French. And don't, <laughs> don't count it as like, uh, oh, it's critical race theory or, oh, it's, it's reverse uh, discrimination 
or you know anything like that. Just call it what it is. Anti-white. It is anti-white. Yes. This goes back to what I was saying about that bravery. Yeah. You know, it, it comes from uh, cowardice, this I the idea of couching in, in some uh, other framework that you think is uh, is more palatable. or uh, It's reverse racism. I, I hate that term. I hate that yeah. term. For the recording, for the record, I'm referring to our guest on the people square on november 18th 2021 probably i'd say the worst guest that has ever <laughs> graced the people square his name's big papa fascist uh there are certainly many puns you could use to uh regarding his name what he actually is he's he's not a fascist he's many things but he's not a fascist and uh he he said you know don't claim you're white. Don't fight on the basis of being white. Fight on the basis of your sub-European identity as a white American. You know, not not many of us in the United States are as pure and untainted of <laughs> ethnic Americans like my friend Nikkei over here. But <laughs> for most of us, it. We, we are white and we're attacked as being white. So that's the basis you need to fight your employment cases on. Well, even the um, the Normicons that are out there that were following the Rittenhouse, not Normicons, really just normal white people um, and who are so happy about the outcome. Uh, they had to have also been on you know their Twitter or their social media and seeing like the pervasive theme that, you know, here's this thing that they believe was clear cut self-defense. And everybody's couching. This is this is. This is how you know that America is built on a white supremacy system. America is white supremacy. This is this is white privilege in action, and it was just uh, this constant attack on white people. Surely, those there's got to be some of those who've used those you know weasel words like reverse r- racism or whatever, who are going to start saying you know s- saying it out loud that this is anti-white, anti-white, anti-white. Um, in fact, I, I I was mentioning to you guys uh, before we started. Um, I was driving through a neighborhood and I saw a sign, a yard sign that said. White supremacy is terrorism, and I was thinking about all the tweets I read this weekend. With um, you know, this is proof that the United States' very fabric is white supremacy. And I kind of wanted to stop and just politely knock on the door and inquire of the person within if what you believe, if what's on your sign is something you truly believe. I'm wondering if you shouldn't choose your words and actions very, very carefully. <laughs> I, I mean, not as a threat. I just literally, if you, if you believe that white supremacy is terrorism and that, you know, therefore, and by the transitive property that white supremacy undergirds everything in America, then, man, you're just like walking around a minefield right now, aren't you? Yeah, you, you must very feel careful. like you live in the Islamic State or something. Yeah, but, but what's the truth, though? No, they don't. You don't get fired because you attack white people. You don't lose your job. You don't lose your promotion. You don't get ostracized or marginalized for attacking white people no matter what it is no matter how ridiculous it is what you do is you get called a dissident you get or you have to become a dissident you uh you can have your life ruined you can have uh smears thrown at you you can end up in fucking charlottesville because you went to a legally permitted rally because you're pro-white so let's not have any more of this bullshit about america being built on white supremacy the the, the governing zeitgeist of this entire country is the google Human Relations Department, Human Resources Department, where they make you say your pronouns and what your privilege is and all that when you get introduced. And the pecking order is definitely white cishet men, patriarchs, 
at the bottom, Jews at the very top. Fag somewhere in the middle. You get the idea. Pass along white supremacy as terrorism to all the libtards moving to Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, um, Colorado, Utah, Arizona. Could you pass that along to all those people moving to those states? I No, I would pass it along to the world. Uh, I would ask if, if, if you believe all of these statements that America is built on white supremacy – that white supremacy is terrorism and violence by its very nature. Peter Simi said it on the stand, didn't he? And if you believe that, and if you believe that all America does is oppress minorities while trying to build uh, some super protected class of you know exclusively for white people, all the privileges go to white people, all the benefits go to white people. If you truly believe that, why would you come here? Why would you come to this country, much less move to a state like Idaho? You don't believe it. You know it's not true. And if you say that the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict is white supremacy, I would actually agree with you. It is the supremacy of certain rules codified, a certain sense of you know uh, fairness, a certain sense of the way the law is supposed to work, derived from Greek and Roman philosophy, derived from English common law. And it works best for white people because that's who it was built for. It's in our culture. It's in our heritage. It's in our DNA. It's in our blood. And so you come here to my country. You want to you know, continue your different ways, and you're surprised that you don't get ahead in the system or you see you know, verdicts like this that don't work against you, and you have to subvert what it is. You have to subvert my entire country, my entire system, the things that were built for my generation or from, you know, for my, by my ancestors for future generations. Is that where we're going to go with this? Because – what you're saying is you need to be separate from the white system, and we – if we're going to have a system that works best for us, we need to have it separate from you. And I'm all on fucking board with that. Amen. Can't come soon enough. Sorry, I got a little bit rustled there. <laughs> My jimmies. Somebody rustle them. No, no apologies uh, needed. No, it's I'm not apologizing my- for it so much as I just – I didn't mean to, to hog the mic there. Uh, are we going to keep talking about trials? Do we have anything else to talk about with the, the all the legal things? I do want to get well, a, a big I have picture like for you. One more thing. Uh, yeah, and before uh, we go, I, before we um, finish up the legal stuff, I want both your perspective and, and Kegs is on. You know, we've had the Rittenhouse, we've had we have Charlottesville ongoing, and we have the McMichael's going on. You know, not saying one's more important than the other, but just weighing the importance. Why do you think each one is important in its own way? But g- go ahead with what you were going to say, Nikkei. I was going to say, uh, you know, Rittenhouse isn't out of uh, out of hot water yet. I mean, he still has plenty of uh, uphill battles waiting for him. And, uh, you know, I saw a good video explaining, uh, you know, how the prosecution could still win. So, uh, Frank, if you could play that video I sent you uh, real quick. Sorry, I just wanted to rub it in that they took a big fat L. 
I've just um, been enjoying the salt. Between Charlottesville now and uh, we, we have a huge victory, an unambiguous victory for for white men. Let's just be honest with Rittenhouse. But between Charlottesville and McMichael's, you know, which is important in its own way, and, and you know, because they're very different trials, obviously. So, like the impact, what do you think? The, what could echo from these decisions, good or bad? Well, what can echo from the Charlottesville trial? There's already been a lot of echoing. <laughs> I knew I was setting myself up when I, yeah, okay. Yeah, but that's keep the going. Alley-oop set up. You knew what you're doing. Uh, no, I actually, I, I do think the uh, Rittenhouse is going to have the most tangible um, and immediate uh, long-term impact uh, just on uh, American society uh, at large. I think it's given, uh, especially like right-wingers, and renewed confidence in their right to self-defense. And that's that's meaningful, very meaningful. I mean, and I wonder if, if some it, of the reactions... It's the difference of life and death. Well... So I wonder if some of the reactions from libtards were saying exactly that, and they were saying, and now it's been inscribed in the law that you can go armed to a protest, and if someone attacks you, you can shoot them, or you know, however they put it. And I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, it's always been the law that you can shoot your, you know, shoot to defend yourself, but yeah, now maybe the left and the antifa and all that have to think, do we have another Kyle Rittenhouse here when they, you know, when some uh, white guys with AR show up and are defending property or whatever they're doing peacefully, you know. They have to worry that, you know, I might become the next Joe Rosenbaum. I might become, you know, I might get disarmed. <laughs> yeah, there's a limp-wristed junkies got to think twice now. Yeah. What about you, Kegs? What do you think is, uh, you know, the impact of these three trials? I think the impact, like I said, was it demonstrates that justice the remaining justice in this system is a product of where you are tried. And in Kenosha, that was positive. In Charlottesville, what might be happening is if you look at the Western District of Virginia, it's a little blue island of Seaville in the middle of White Appalachistan. And I think some of the jurors they had to pull from the from the hinterlands out there are are holding up their process, and that's that's positive. And it also you can contrast that with how the January six defendants are are feeling right now, where they know that if you go to go to trial in the District of Columbia, that jury will not be favorable oh, to fucked. you at all. You're yeah, capital capital F fucked. Which is why I'm holding out hope for the McMichaels case that at the end of the day on that jury, there will be jurors who they know what it's like to live in one of those Georgia suburbs. If you're there, you know the two black families on the block. You know uh, if, if there are some and, and, and you know what, what they're doing and what their deal is. You know what it's like when outsiders are coming into your neighborhood and the analogy I would draw would be it's like little barbarian raiding parties coming in from the Rhine frontier to raid the little Roman settlements at the at the edge of civilization and that's 
what I'd hope the jury pool in the McMichaels case brings. And I, I hope that if the McMichaels case is successful, it shows that jurors are still willing to bring in their, their lived experience and the way things actually work in this country in a fantastic jogging fantasies where yeah. I, I was struck that in the coverage of the trial from CNN and NPR, at least, Armad Arbery is still being referred to as a jogger. He is the black, the black jogger is how he's referred to. Yeah, um, I think you make a great point, but, you know, I'm going to have to dock your pay this week because you use the words lived experience unironically. Um, <laughs> we don't allow that on this show. You know that. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 hey, what I, um, about? oh, that's right. We didn't tell him. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, nobody gets paid. No, no, no. Anyway, um, one thing I, I did notice is, and not having been in like, I've, I've covered a lot of trials, but I'd never, you know, really had a much of a, a how to, how to put this. They were all pretty dry, and they weren't as interesting uh, to me one way or the other. So I really wasn't pay paying attention to how the judge ruled. And for the most part, I just assumed the judges were kind of pretty neutral. But what we've seen with these dramatically different approaches from Judge Moon and uh, Judge Schroeder, I mean, the judge can very easily put his thumb on the scale for either side. And it's, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I think, you know, obviously Judge Schroeder had a bias i think he did and i think it's great that he put his thumb on the scale it was an obvious open and shut case but he didn't allow a lot of shenanigans and the way he you know raised his voice to the uh prosecutors it just showed a, a very different approach than what i saw from like judge moon or from what i'm hearing about this judge in the uh, mcmichael's trial so i kind of take issue with calling that bias what he did was just uphold the the standard practice of how the how court operates in America? Like yeah, I just, it's, I just, it's a bias towards doing the right thing. Like it's like nothing. Uh, there was a shit ton of impropriety from the uh, prosecution. And yeah. Oh, absolutely. He, I'm not saying he he like was heavy on the scale, but he was just he he was obviously a conservative white boomer um, that was going to you know look upon Kyle Rittenhouse you know at, at least in friendly terms. So I'm not saying he really like favored it because, like I said, the case was so open and shut. But yeah, he, he, there was a certain amount of outrage that this kid was going through all this. I think. So, yeah, or maybe maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just so used to things not going our way in courtrooms that to have it actually work and somebody apply the law fairly made it seem like bias to me. The the window shifted that far. All right. Um, do we have anything else we want to finish up before we get out of here? Is. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everyone. Yes. yes. Don't Thanksgiving. Let, and at the end of the day, don't let politics or these trials or what's in the news ruin your family relationships. And no. don't family family comes first. That's my take on things. I agree. Eat turkey and dunk on Native Americans. Dunk on chugs. <laughs> All right, uh, real quick, y'all got some plugs you want to give me before we get out of here? Uh, sure. Uh, 
check out the young whites on the right stuff biz uh i was on a recent episode of hate house check that out as well and you can find me uh on the fediverse uh at nike at pleroma dot nobody has the dot biz nice kegs you uh you got anything coming up no i just pimped the free expression foundation uh generally glenn allen's good man and i'd advise you all to check out his website absolutely um real quickly i want to thank the i think we almost had 100 live listeners even though we literally posted it moments before we went to air uh so thank you guys for turning out um go to national-justice.com eric striker has some of the best journalism there and i have some coverage of the seville uh trial and i will continue posting as uh things develop Go to dissident-mag.com from the people who bring you fascination. They've got some great write-ups there as well. Go to nationaljusticeparty.com and especially, especially go to antelopehillpublishing.com. That's antelopehillpublishing.com and look for opioids for the masses. Uh, and then join us every week behind the uh, paywall at the TRS radio network. It's the right stuff biz slash paywall. That's it for this fo- this week, folks. Remember, I also didn't write an outro joke. Mr. Producer, Hail Victory. See ya, Kyle. So, um, uh, before you we started the recording, you'd asked me when I thought uh, how I thought the jury was reacting to it, and that's a very interesting uh, that's a very interesting part of the story because then that's why I suggested that we do it this way. Um, so, you know, I had a, a rough idea in my head from jury selection who was and was not inclined to be on my side, right? Mm-hmm. And jury selection was blood sport in this case. Like, neither side was trying to select an impartial jury. We literally had people, you know, like the jury selection questionnaires asked people things like, how do you feel about Antifa? And some people said, you know, they're the saviors of the damn republic. And other people said they were useless criminals, right? And, right. and the uh, and the and the plaintiffs filed a motion with the court seeking to exclude for cause everybody who had said negative things about Antifa, calling it um, extremist views. And I'm like, no, I don't think it's an extremist view to say that the people who spent 2020 looting and burning are useless criminals and terrorists, right? <laughs> so exactly. We had people who said that Antifa were terrorists, and we had people who say Antifa is the saviors of the republic on our jury. Okay, and you you can just imagine what plaintiffs' counsel. Uh, tried to do race-wise, okay? I don't even get into details. You can figure this out. And so um, when I'm looking at the jury today, most of the time during a trial, I'm not looking at the jury. I'm looking at the witness stand. That's the direction that the podium is facing in. And because I'm a, a prisoner, the, the marshals don't want me, like, moving around at the witness at the podium. You know, I've got to stay where I am. And they actually right. scolded me once when I turned around to look at the jury. So I don't get to see what they're doing most of the time. Today, the podium was facing the jury, so there was a great deal of eye contact involved. And I actually had uh, uh, eye contact and literally nodding approval from jurors who I was certain were the other side's jurors, you know. Um, Really? And and literally, as I'm saying something, the juror is looking in the eye and nodding yes. And I'm like... Oh yeah, that is good news, you know, and uh, that that I think is uh, probably the the greatest illustration I can about you know how I how I think that this thing went down. That I, I literally think I won the other side over. Absolutely, and you know it may very well be that the fix is in. 
um, you know, with the judge's thumb heavily on the uh, plaintiff's side of the scale. But, um, I mean, what you delivered and, uh, you know, this holistic defense of all the, all the defendants ultimately and on the larger principle was just amazing. Well, thank you. I, uh, I, I, I was, and I'll tell you something else about, you know, putting this thing together, right? So I had to do my closing argument, like, on the fly, you know. Um, I don't have a computer back here. They wake me up at 3 o'clock in the morning to go to court, and so I'm tired as hell by the time I get back here. I wrote, like, a couple of pages by hand last night, and I was writing, you know, little bits and pieces between the breaks yesterday, and, uh, and, I, and I finished it up. Uh, in an hour I had before court this morning and, and an hour at lunch. And uh, the, the other terrible shame here is I didn't get to finish the thing. I, I think I, I probably had, I could have probably gone for another 15 minutes, and uh, I just ran out of time. And uh, that's always been my, my downside is editing. I find it impossible to do. <laughs> I have a, an ego this size of Texas, and I'm like, what do you mean? I can't take out a single word. All of this is gold, right? I can't. I can't find it in myself to take anything out. Just like the radical agenda is the format that it is. I'll just talk for two hours. And, oh, time's up. <laughs> See you Wednesday. You know. Um, and so uh, I I have had to try to work on that during the course of this, but I, I didn't get the chance to. I really think it that it rattled. I really think that it rattled the plaintiff's attorneys. I mean, um, you had Karen Dunn uh, went up there instead of Roberta Kaplan for the for the final rebuttal. And I just think yeah. that during, as you were unloading, you know, at least three of the four co-ethnics on the plaintiff's side, some ancient fear was creeping into their, their hindbrain. You know, this is the white man awakened. And I think they, they were just not ready for that. Yeah, when the Saxon began to hate, right? And like, yeah. <laughs> they were, uh, I, I made eye contact with them a couple of times, too, specifically the moment where I, I, I was jotting, you know, I had most of this done by the time um, they had already started their statement, but I inserted a couple of things where they said things that I wanted to correct, you know. And I think the best one was Kaplan told them that it was the plaintiffs, not the defendants, who were injured. And I'm like, right. you saw the video of me getting pepper sprayed. You know, you saw this woman bringing his baton down on people's heads, you know. These people live in their Twitter mentions. They have no idea how ridiculous they sound to normal people, right? And, like, and I looked at her when I said that, and she <laughs> she half wanted to crawl under the table and half wanted to flip it over, I think. And oh, my it God. Was, it was a glorious moment. And so I think it went pretty Yeah. I, I think this just demonstrates that we're not dealing with, like, the, the old school of, uh, you know, the, the Jewish elite. This is, like, the, the more degenerate level. They, they've been playing the game on easy mode, and then they just don't expect a wild card getting in there. You know, it genuinely is. I, I think that they, you know, they were definitely made uncomfortable. I, I, I'm, I feel very good saying that I think that they realized that they, they, they screwed up by bringing me into this. You know, <laughs> um, most of most of the lawyers there um, were happy to let most of those witnesses go without questioning them very much, and. Um, and I asked penetrating questions that made fools of them, and I dismantled those lies today, and they know it. And whatever they might say, or however they might, you know, whatever the outcome of this is, you know, they know that that happened. They definitely know that it did. And um, 
I think you may have heard me say before that, you know, at the beginning of the thing, I, I said to Plankton's counsel, I said to Michael Black, I'm like, are you ready to lose to the crying Nazi? You know, and, <laughs> oh, man, I I want so bad to see that moment, you know. I, I really like Oh, it. yeah, we, we all do. It, we all do, absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know, forget about the, you know, the ultimate outcome of it. I just want to, I want to beat them now, you know. I want them to know that I defeated them. Um and I and I really I have really good reason to hope that uh, that that's going to be what happens here. Uh, but you know I won't so, give uh, up too much because I've learned not to have too much faith in a federal court. <laughs> learned the hard way. Well, there is that. I mean, but what's your optimism level right now? You know, it's I'm 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 working hard to keep my optimism down. Like I I'm like I I want to I want to celebrate my victory now, right? I'm, I'm 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 on an emotional victory credit card, <laughs> and uh, I and I'm hoping the interest rate doesn't turn out to be higher than I can afford. I guess because if I go back there and they're like, "Yeah, you owe thirty million dollars to these communists who attacked you," <laughs> well, that's gonna really gonna really gonna screw my day up, you know? Yeah. I just I, 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 it's so funny. They're asking for between anywhere from three to ten million dollars in punitive damages per per client. Yeah. Oh my I'm God! Like, and and they're definitely going to get it from from the this row of defendants, you know, uh, many of many of whom either from modest means or indigent or just you know in jail, you know exactly how much can you possibly earn while you're in jail? I mean, it's ridiculous. If they really wanted to, uh, we said it before. If they wanted to get actual damages for their clients, they would have could have written each one of them a check for one point five million dollars, right there. Yeah. Yeah. These people. Uh they they could have put that you know they could have, they could have, instead of spending fifteen million dollars on this litigation they could have tried to help people with it and instead they decided to pursue this fucking asshole vendetta and uh, and I hope that they are I hope they're fifteen million dollars poorer for it. <laughs> yeah, well I don't want to fan your balls too much, but uh, one thing that I noticed and maybe it was this was uh, intentional on your part maybe it was just you know the, the natural showman in you, but uh, after hours and hours of tedious you know detailed testimony coming from the plaintiffs. You would uh you'd be the guy out there showing them fight videos, you know, like the best of amateur yeah. fight videos. That had yeah. to endear you to the the jury. Well, you know, I I, I actually have, from what I've heard, there's some feedback that that may have not been the wisest of things, but I, I think that it was, because you know the the, the story that they keep on telling. It, it's it's amazing to me that they that they think so little of the jurors, right? Because they keep on saying they keep on sticking to the story that the innocent students with their arms linked around the statue. I'm like, mm-hmm. no. Here are the violent communists that were fighting, and look at them get beat up while the students run away, right? Like this is not true. And so, you know, that was very. I know it's this doesn't come across in the audio. I'm I'm certain, but it's actually very clear from the videos what's happening that that they're lying, and so. Uh, I do think that that I do think that that was a wise investment um, of the you know very limited time that I had was to was to show them that one more time and I mean there's there's so much of the video that I could take all day showing it to them right but um, right I I made a very careful selection about what I showed them just to prove that you know the namesake of the case is a liar right like it was Elizabeth Signs is you know Signs v Kessler is the case of the docket. Elizabeth right. Sines said on the stand, swore to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and then said they were systematically taking the students down off the statue and beating them one by one. 
and that it was so ridiculously false, just so so obviously proven untrue by the video, that who mm-hmm. was getting beat up was Thomas Massey and Thomas Keenan. And those guys are criminals from Philadelphia, and I wish that I could have shown the jury more about who those people were. But, you know, and all I had to show was that nobody ever said that they were students. Nobody ever, you know, save for me, nobody's attempted to identify them. Nobody's calling them as witnesses, and they were the ones that got beat up. And I definitely showed that to the jury, and they knew it, and that means that they knew that the plaintiffs were lying to them in their closing arguments, same as they did in the open. And so for those reasons, I, I think it was a good investment, and I, and I think that, um, I, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have to wait and see what the outcome is, obviously, but I, I really think that we connected with them. Oh, yeah, and I think, um, you know, when the uh, plaintiffs wanted to introduce any video testimony, it was just all these little out-of-context snippets, just like 10 seconds here or five seconds there. Um, and then every one of the defendants to a man, when they were asked if they wanted more video evidence into, you know, into the record, they were like, yes, the more the merrier. And so it, I think it's got to come across to the jury that, you know, one side's trying to tell this very really shaky foundation story with all these little, you know, you have snippets one here. Um, but, but yeah, so I, right. I, I, they I love was, their photographs. They love their five second videos. They're like, look at him punch this man in the video. You know, it's like, okay, can right. I get the other 30 seconds, please? <laughs> no, can I get, can I get the, can I get the part where the other guy throws the first punch? Can we do that? Um, yeah. Uh, Chris, we got like 45 exactly. seconds. Is there, is there yeah. anything you want to get out there? Um, I can get this published out tonight, I think. I, uh, I just, uh. You know, I'm, uh, I consider it a great privilege to have been able to do this today. People have relayed to me a lot of um, well wishes and warm support from uh, the, the social media world out there. And I am, uh, it was, it was, uh, I don't know which was better, making the speech or hearing from all of you. And I'm, and I'm grateful for the privilege. So I will, uh, uh, I will certainly speak to you again once we have a verdict, sir. And I thank you very much for uh, getting the message out there. Thank you, Chris. Hail victory. Take care. Hail victory.